Blog Talk Radio. This is Kale Brown. Now, I didn't play a doctor on TV, but I will prescribe Brandon's Buzz for absolutely anybody who wants to know what's really going on. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. This is Taylor Dane, and you are listening to the one and only Brandon Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. This is Linda Dano. I'm on Brandon's Buzz, and I have to tell you, what a fun hour I just had. Ah. This is a great kid with a wonderful heart and soul. You listen every day. I know I will. Hey, hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you are checking out Brandon's Buzz right now. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big. I'm live and kicking on Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Dave Romero, and you're going to love buzzing with Brandon's Buzz. Hey guys, welcome back to Brandon's Buzz. I am Brandon. It's Thursday, October 31st, 2013. 10 p.m. out in the east, 7 p.m. back west, 9 p.m. here in Texas. Happy Halloween, y'all, and I am so, so thrilled to be back with you here and back with a hell of a great guest this fine night. You know, if you're like me at all, you'll swear, just as the Paul Simon song goes, that you were born at the right time. I hit this planet running in the summer of 1976 the same July my country celebrated its bicentennial, and that means I was eight years old in 1984 when a brilliant, box-busting daily serial named of Santa Barbara hit the airwaves. And though it didn't even last a full nine years on the air, a drop in the bucket in soap terms, that show blazed a ferocious path across the night sky, leaving behind a legacy of excellence and creative achievement that is still discussed and still remembered with utmost fondness some two decades after its tragic demise. You know, some of the finest actors in the history of television, in the history of American acting, daytime, primetime, any damn time, y'all, were privileged to call Santa Barbara home at one time or another. Among them, uh, Louis Sorrell, Justin Dees, Lane Davies, Nicholas Coster, the great Gordon Thompson, Nancy Gron, the fiercely brilliant Kim Zimmer, the exquisite Marcy Walker, to name just a scant few. But one could argue, and I'm about to, that no character was more crucial to that show's canvas than true blue good guy cop Cruz Castillo, and that no actor on that show's roster left more of an impression than his dashing, dynamite, Emmy-winning portrayer, the staggeringly fine Mr. A. Martinez. Martinez had quite a career as a character actor prior to Santa Barbara, and has gone on to achieve great success in a variety of roles in other soap parts and in primetime and film since Santa Barbara wrapped. But it seems fair to say that his body of performances as Cruz remains his best-loved work such as the blessing and the curse, I would imagine, of being so profoundly brilliant in a role that you literally can't imagine a single other soul in the universe playing. But, you know, that thing about his best love work may all be about to change. Martinez is hard at work on a new film, his directorial debut from a script that he wrote himself called Before Your Eyes. And he stopped by the buzz to tell us all about the process of wearing many different hats on a film set for the first time, as well as his life and career before Santa Barbara, and about what it was like being the most famous person in France after Santa Barbara became the global phenomenon that took American soaps to the worldwide masses. 
So uh, let's start at the beginning here. Let's set the table. Give me where were you born, where were you raised, where would you go to school. Let's get that stuff out of the way. Well, I was born in Glendale, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. I grew up in the Tahunga community. Sunland Tahunga is a kind of a sister city little community that I ended up finally being in. My parents moved around when I was a baby. They were just scrambling to kind of make ends meet, and that's where they finally settled. So I grew up in that town. I went to high school there, Perdugo Hills High School, started getting involved in theater, and ended up, because of that, going to UCLA and studying theater arts. And that was such a great, good fortune for me, because being a a major university in L.A., it had a connection to a lot of people in in the business. And I did get discovered, basically, in an acting class by a casting director who was working for an associate of Francis Ford Coppola, and they were making this low-budget movie about kids in distress in high school, and the guy was going around to colleges looking at young actors that could play high school kids. And he saw me on a day when I just happened to be doing a lot of work. It was an improvisation class, and my friends in the class, I was actually pretty shy about it, but my friends, three different friends of mine, jumped me, as the saying goes. You you start an improvisation. (laughs) The exercise is called jumping, so you... Three people that were close to me jumped me into three different scenes, so I got to do a lot of acting even though I didn't really have the nerve to start anything. And the casting director was up in the shadows at the top of this theater and came down afterwards and said, we should talk, and that was the beginning for me. And were the arts something that you kind of stumbled into, or was it always kind of your goal to uh, you know, be in front of the camera, be in the, be in the industry? Well, I started singing fairly early. My father was a teacher, and he would bring the auto harp from his classroom home with the songbooks. And we'd sit around and sing together, you know, real kind of old standard Americana music. And, yeah, it was very cool. And he's got a lovely voice, as does my mom. And so we started singing as a family and then sang in church. And, you know, I had a high voice, and I started getting asked to um, do some solos and stuff. And... So I started basically singing, and then as time went on and I was trying to sort of find myself, I was actually preparing to study uh, political science because a teacher had decided that that would be something I would I could actually flourish behind and, and on the path okay. of becoming a lawyer. So, you know, I, I was sort of going along with that. I, I mean, I was a pretty studious kid, but what surprised me was in the summer between high school and college, when UCLA sends all their preliminary information to the students, they immediately attack you if you're in the political science realm. I mean, they, they, they send you a list of 11 books they want you to read over the summer. And, of course, this is the last summer after high school, and I'm basically devoted to having a good time above all else. And I thought, I don't think about these 11 books, you know, this looks a little bit rough. And the guy that I had met in an acting class, I'm a real good friend from uh, I just done a play with. He's committed to the theater, and he basically uh, had to write a 500-word story about himself to bring to opening day of school. And I thought, you know, that's a more reasonable kind of expectation for a kid in my position. And plus, I had a real appetite for the kind of people you met in the theater. I had been doing a lot of extracurricular stuff in athletics and studying hard and you know trying to be involved in student stuff and somehow the people in the theater department kept spinning my head in terms of their joy about being alive their willingness to take chances in the in the choices they made and just their general beauty and grace and I 
I sort of got seduced into just wanting to be around the people, even at that young age, and that has continued to be the case all throughout the years of my career. I, I told my own kids this, and, and I, the fact of the matter is that one of the very best things about being involved in the storytelling dynamic or business or game is that you meet such a wonderful strain of human being that has also decided to follow in that pursuit. Wow. It's great. Yeah. You know, plus, uh, I want to imagine, if only for the romance of it, that the age in which you came of age, I mean, you know, if my math is right, you were 15 and 63 when Kennedy was killed, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Vietnam was just coming into that time, I mean, and, you know, uh, a great right. deal of music was coming out of your area of the world at that time, and, you know, I, I can oh, imagine yeah. that, in a great many ways, the age in which you came of age very much contributed to what became your future path. That's really, really true. And it also gave me, ironically, fairly quickly, a, a sort of a, a way of finding a way that the business could use me because I was basically very much committed to the counterculture. I was playing rock and roll, and I was, you know, I was, I had a lot of friends who lived up in San Francisco, so I would spend a lot of time going up between L.A. and San Francisco. And there was a great deal of really glorious experimentation and expectation about the possibilities of community that had never been in existence before and when certain casting directors got a look at this dark-skinned kid with really long hair you know it was like well that guy he'll play the bad guy he's look at him he's he's perfect you know that people like that do terrible things and we can find him right up right now yes so it helped you it really did help and you know plus it was so empowering from a personal point of view i recall when i first got a really big part on a tv show i decided i'd take out ads in the trade papers and variety in the hollywood reporter but my idea of how to do that appropriately was to sign up my friends to draw pictures of me and you know just make up these incredibly bizarre like little pastiche kind of you know visuals that were so completely out of character for the publications and really arguably grossly inappropriate but because of that suddenly people went oh who is that even though it didn't occur to me that it was actually maybe a smart thing to do from a public relations point of view it just seemed like it would be utterly fun you know utterly fun <laughs> you know I, I think a lot of people still mistakenly believe your big break was santa barbara but you know you were working i mean good heavens I, I took a look at your imdb page today just to look at it and and even i who have been a fan of your work since I was knee-high to a caterpillar. Even I was blown away by the sheer uh, length of your credits. I mean, you know, Mission Impossible and Ironside and Falcon Crest and All in the Family. You can't name practically a hit show from, from say, 69 to 84 that you didn't guest on. Yeah, really nice job of doing your homework, man. Yeah, i got to say, I did get to work. You know, it seemed like a miracle, but it sort of kept going on. Also, I feel, and I don't quite understand why, but... I was really lucky in that I was not singled out for some of the criticism that could easily have been focused on me. I really was not in command of myself to the degree that I should have been getting paid to do it. And I, I was, I, I, God, I was brave and stuff, but I would make a lot of choices that were ill-advised and just basically didn't work. And yet people tended to leave me alone in the reviews that accrued around stuff I did. They just decided not to say anything about me until I slowly kind of tried to figure it out. But I did have a sense, you know, I think I was in it probably 16 years or so before Santa Barbara came. And I did have a sense that it was a little bit 
foreboding that it, it didn't really seem to matter to anybody whether or not my career was in existence. I mean, I was getting to work, but it really didn't seem like I'd made really any kind of a mark. And ironically, Santa Barbara seemed like a terrible idea to me when it was put in front of me. <laughs> and there you go, you know. Yeah. You know, uh, clearly, whatever your life and your career were prior to Santa Barbara, both of those things changed shape and, and, and course radically once the show hit the air. And, uh, you know, I, I was just dying to hear about how Cruz Castillo came into your life. I mean, did you have any notion what you were signing on for when you took that role? Well, you know, I had done an episode of, I think it was Police Woman, that was actually directed by the great director Michael Mann in one of his very first outings in Hollywood. And, you know, would go on to do Miami Vice and then all sure. those great movies he made. And he was directing this really interesting script and police story that had a character of a nun who was actually a man in drag who was going around committing hideous crimes because of some mortal wound to his psyche. And on that gig, I met an actress who was just wonderful out of New York, and she and I had a relationship for a while. And she had been in a soap in New York, and so I'd be out walking with her sometimes, and people would just come hurtling out of the bushes and just go, oh, my God, and start talking to her as if they knew her. And so I did have an inkling that, you know, Would I know this person's name? Tony Kalem is her name. She was a wonderful actress and basically gave me a, a way to see up close and personal just the power of the thing. Sure. But I sure. basically still had never watched. You know, if you haven't really watched it and you haven't ever sort of bought into it, you really don't know what it is. And you sort of – I do recall like a few times early on having stumbled across a soap opera when they were in their more – crude kind of days when it was literally it was as if there were an organist in the studio playing live to the show right and you'd see these actors and the thing that always the single thing that used to scare me to death was you'd see the scene end okay the scene is over that was a pretty good scene and yeah. now the camera would just sit on the actor's face and the music would swell and the actor is asked to fill that time doing something that is interesting and somehow supposed to actually stay honest. And I just thought, oh, my God, you know. So I wasn't really into doing it. And luckily, the people that were in charge of the process were smarter than me. Reuben Cannon, the great casting director, finally went to my manager after I had said no three times and said, you know, He's making a mistake here. He's been working a while. He's doing okay, but this would be a chance for him to actually be thought of in a romantic light as opposed to just doing the things he's doing right now, which is playing doing the bad heavy guy. The, the show of the, the week, yeah. Right. Exactly. He went out of his way to actually say this to my manager, and she had a phone call that was obviously changed my life. I had done a good job in the audition because my wife had said, when I balked at how how I didn't think I could really do the scene well, I didn't find any way I could do this scene well. She said, well, then write something else. So I went to a park in Burbank, and I sat beneath a tree, and I wrote for a few hours. And when I went to the audition, I gave it to the casting man's associate. And she looked over and said, sure, we can do this. So wow. I had the advantage in the audition of being the only actor who had written his own scene. Holy cow. So, uh, yeah, that was a pretty big advantage. But I was sufficiently ignorant of the way things really worked that until I showed up in that room and was talking to the other actors I knew who were competing for the role, I didn't understand it was a daytime show. Either my agent had fooled me or I had misunderstood <laughs> that I was going up for the equivalent of Dynasty or Dallas or something. Wow. So, yeah, it was a lot of really 
really unlikely kind of things had to fall in place to make it work. And, you know, I'm just so lucky that they did. You mentioned the other actors. Was anybody else up for crews that we might know today, or, or was it all uh, kind well, of unknown like yourself friend, in terms of... The first guy that I recall, uh, you know, sitting close to me in the room was Richard Iñiguez, who had played a role in a film about the guy who, in the Texas, you, you probably know about this. Uh, there was a guy who was a shooter on the on a, in a university in Texas from a tower. Sure, yes, 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 yes. That guy, he played the policeman who um, took that guy down in a really high-profile television movie of the day, and he did a wonderful job. And I, I wanted that part so bad, and I was, you know, feeling so. <laughs> <laughs> kind of upset about it until I saw it, and then I, when I saw what a great job he did, you know, I sort of like <laughs> tipped my hat. It, it's an interesting thing, Brandon, the way that you deal with the things you don't get to do when you finally see them, because you know, a sure. lot of times you want to go see them and see, well, why was it that I was not chosen? And and, and then um, you figure it out pretty when, quickly. You do, and, and it's <laughs> and it's wonderful. It sort of takes you off the hook. It's like you thought, well. You know, you can sort of forgive yourself for not being good enough or not being smart enough in the room sure. when you see someone do it who got chosen over you who obviously was well-suited to play that part. The only time it's crazy-making is when you go see the person who got the part and you think, what were they thinking? I mean, yeah. that you know, for me, that didn't work at all, and I could have done so much better than that. But normally what happens is, you know, you're chastened and you realize, well, the reason that you didn't get the part is that that guy was better suited for the part than you. You know, I love listening to uh, uh, Tony Geary talk about how Luke Spencer was originally supposed to be a 13-week role or, you know, Stephen Mm. Nichols used to talk about how Patch on Days of Our Lives was never supposed to be the romantic hero of that show. And, and, you know, uh, in the original incarnation of Santa Barbara was Cruz and, of course, Cruz and Eden. Were they always intended to be what they became, or was it just smart writers and smart producers recognizing what was coming across on screen and then writing toward it? That's a really, really good question. And boy, you know, talk about the machinery of fate working behind the scenes. <laughs> it's like, who knew, right? But, I mean, I was supposed to be, you know, a fairly important guy on the canvas, but it was a big, big canvas. And what happened is that the plans they had made were simply not working out. And that was from the point of view of the affiliates, right? Because at the beginning, especially, of a show that's unproven, you've got to get the affiliates to buy it because the revenue that they're getting from their own markets and their own advertising is so dependent on what the network is delivering in those early afternoon hours. The numbers, you know, the number of eyeballs. And, you know, if the people are voting by deciding not to watch, then the affiliates get concerned and there starts to be this grumbling that must be addressed because if they start to like decide, you know, to put on reruns of Mannix or something instead of your show, you're doomed. Because, you know, people so, don't really understand that the affiliates make their money mainly by their local news. And it's what is on in the afternoon hours that drives viewers toward that local news. And so uh, exactly. whatever they've got to do to drive viewers toward that local news is what they're going to do. Exactly that. And basically, who knows the reasons? I, I have, there's a lot of things you can point to and say that contributed. One of the s- simple things about it, which was the virtue of the show, was that it was not populated mainly by people that were historically attuned to like cranking out daytime television. It had, you know, Jeffrey Hayden was you know, out of the New York theater, um, you know, the, uh, the, this genius producer from New York who had never done such a thing. You know, we had people in positions of vision there that were seeking to do it 
in ways that it had never been done. But as a result of that, we were in tremendous difficulty just getting the show on the air. I mean, it took us six weeks to do an episode where it finished before midnight. And when you're <laughs> having to show up at 7 a.m. to do the work and Holy you're finishing God. after midnight, I, like several other actors, started sleeping in my dressing room because I couldn't <laughs> afford the time to drive home and back. You know, Jeffrey came to me one day and said, man, what is wrong with you guys? You are all losing all this weight. I need you guys to be like these young studly boys, yeah. and you're all like shrinking before my says, dude, we're like, we're dying out here, man. You know, I mean, we're, you know, it's like you try it. You're under tremendous pressure, and you're not getting any sleep, and you start to kind of go off sideways, you know. So it was, there was a sense of crisis. And at one point in time, the memo went out, we're going to cleanse the cast and fix everything again. It's going to go in a whole new direction. And there was a really unfortunate faux pas that happened in the wake of that, which was that the private in-house broadcast that was supposed to be shared simply among the affiliates in the network somehow got leaked into the NBC kind of system on the day. And in our dressing room, on our monitor, came the message that was supposed to be for eyes only for the people that actually made the decisions and the affiliation of the network. So suddenly we got the head of the network saying, we're going <laughs> to fix this. All these unpopular characters are going to die in this earthquake, and it's going to be fine. And there was a giant picture of the cast on the screen and one by one, red X's started to appear oh, no. over the faces of actor after actor after <laughs> no. actor. And we're sitting there in the dressing room watching. I mean, it was, it was like, it was so horrible. It was, you know, you wanted to laugh, but you wouldn't dare. You know? and people were just outraged and horribly despondent. But in the aftermath of that, coincidental with actually us figuring out a way to start shooting the show in a way that wasn't just emotionally killing us from a, the short point of view. Jill Farron Phelps, who um, was just at that time being plucked out of the music department to become a producer because she had the right answers when the executives started walking in the studio saying, what the hell can we do? And she has gone on to be, you know, this visionary of icon of the game. Of course. And she thought that they should give me and Marcy a chance. So they set it up to write three days for us to put us in a situation where our characters would be forced to be alone in a difficult situation for three days. And then she took us aside and she said, this is your shot. You're going to have three different directors. You're going to have three different people writing the script. There's going to be all kinds of excuses that you can hide behind if something doesn't work. But I would recommend that you make sure that you don't exercise any of those excuses, that you find a way to make this great and not have to apologize and think what if afterwards. This is your shot. So Marcy and I got together, I believe it was over the weekend, and we spent time figuring out, okay, what do we want to do with this? And then when it came time to shoot it, we had a plan outside the kind of normal workings of the machinery. We had stopped and pulled ourselves aside and made a plan. And when it came time to do it, we went to the directors and said, you know, this is what we're going to do. And if it didn't really fit with what they had planned for us, we pushed real hard to make sure that we could do what we needed wow. to do. And we were allowed to do it, and people really liked it. And the next thing you know, we're on board, you know. We got it. We got a, like a place. Yeah. It was wonderful. And our debt to her, especially to Jill, is just, sure. I mean, I can't really put it into words. All I can say is when I start talking about it, I get a lump in my throat. <laughs>
you know, I, I know you have to deal with this with every single interview you do. I know you do. But it's just one of those things that, that you know, people die to know more about. Talk to me about the glorious Marcy Walker, about working with her. <laughs> it just is in the ledger as one of the great gifts of my life, and I have a life that's <laughs> profoundly gifted. So it's just astonishing. We drew each other with such good fortune simply from the point of view that we approach the work from a similar point of view. It's real nuts and bolts kind of approach to acting. You know, it's like first we're going to basically figure out what it is we want to do and how we want to put it into words and the details. You know, it's almost like a mechanical approach at the beginning. Let's like, let's like break this down into like the goals and figure out how we can build towards them. And then the commitment to being brave in the moment, you know, especially when she was delivered into the storylines where she had to look into the darker places in her life. And it is that. It is legitimately that. It is a person being asked to go into the darkest places in their history. Every single day. Up, every single day, for day after day after day. And to be a person who can do that is incredibly rare. And it's not really, it's not something you'd wish on someone you love, that a person that you care about would be so finely in tune with the worst pain in their souls. But she was that person. She was willing to do it, and she didn't flinch when you put a camera in her face. And if you asked her to do it again because, you know, something was wrong with the boom shadow or the mic didn't work or something, you know, she would step back up and do it just as badass as the time before that. She's just, uh, she's just a beast of a talent. And, you know, we got lucky when we needed to get lucky because it was very, very difficult to manage all the power that came out of it between us. And sure. when we really needed something to happen to kind of take some pressure off, inevitably it would. So we were able to get through it without going crazy. And, um, you know, I just, I, again, I can't, I don't even know where to begin to put it into words in terms of comparing it to anything else that's ever happened to me as an actor. It's just the greatest good fortune imaginable. You know, you use the word luck, and it kind of feels silly to attribute a connection that strong and that instantly special to luck, but in a funny way, is it just dumb luck sometimes? Just the well, way things so. work you know, out? I've heard people say that they thought it would be kind of, you know, a little bit forbidden, you know, the blonde princess with the dark boy from the other side of the tracks. That's got to ring a bell, right? It's got to be, you know, sure. look at him. Look at him and look at her, you know, and I had a lot of people even back in the day saying to me, wow, I just love the way you, you two look together, you know, that sense of the differences, you know. But the thing that's so ironic in it is that, that that's where it started. And yet what I can't imagine anybody saw was that we were actually so attuned as actors, the way we approached the work was so in sync without any kind of struggle to find it. I mean, from the minute we started, we were able to kind of understand exactly what the other was saying. We weren't looking around for, you know, how does this person's template, how can I get their templates to like sync up with my templates? It was like, wow, look at this. I see right through my needs into hers and, you know, there's nothing standing in the way. That was, you know, that's just good fortune. You know, you mentioned the way you look together. In a funny way, you and Marcy Cruz and Eden were an interracial couple in a time in soaps when that was still very much a hot-button issue. And, you know, I was just a kid at the time, but, of course, you know, uh, looking back, I don't remember that big a deal being made of that fact. I mean, did you or did the show ever get any pushback for the fact of a Hispanic male and a Caucasian female becoming the hottest love story in soaps? I mean, did you ever get any kind of uh, hate mail or yeah. anything of that, of that ilk? 
Yeah, I did get a little. And, uh, did you, you really? Know, and I got, yeah, I did. And I got some later when I was playing opposite Ali Walker on Profiler. I mean, there is a certain you know group of people that really have dug in and have some kind of a wound about this kind of thing that they need to uh, exercise, and they are going to make a noise about it. So, yeah, I did get a little bit of that. You know, and I was a real aggressive participant in the fan mail process. I thought that was just magical. You can imagine, Brandon, after 16 <laughs> years of doing this, to suddenly have people writing you letters. It's like, holy shit, you know, someone likes it, you know, Someone cares. Oh, my God. I, was th- I thought, if someone is going to bother to take the time to write me a letter, boy, I'm going to read it and think about it and write back. You know, I'm wow. going to make the time to actually make that connection, which to me, it was such a thrill. I felt like I'm actually being delivered into the possibility of, you know, having fans. And actually, you know, if you have fans, then you can keep doing it probably. And you know, it's just, it was such a, a grace. So once you're committed to, to, like, process of reading all the letters and then some of the letters that come from people that really would just assume that they never had seen you or, you know, or, or ever would have to see you again, it was, it's kind of shocking. And, you, you know, then you kind of go, well, what can I say to that, right? And the advice is say nothing to that. Don't participate in that. Don't start a conversation with that. But, you know, it's hard not to. Is it fair to say that at the height of that show's run, you and Marcy were the most famous man and woman in Italy, in France, in Russia? Well, I know we were beloved there. You know, I mean, I, I just... Boy, I tell you, I, I mean, you know, it's so funny. I mean, people loved you in this country, but abroad, I think you guys were royalty. It was so shocking. And I actually was also another reason to be grateful, because I wouldn't really... As much as I started off wanting to be famous and really important, you know, because of my work, the truth is I have a hard time seeing that as being an okay way to live. You know, when you look at people that literally can't go out the door without somebody sticking a camera in their face and every single, you know, and, and the stories about them are in these magazines. I mean, it's really, I just think it would be really difficult not to have it make you get a little bent. Sure. But I... You know, growing up as a kid, I mean, I've been around long enough to remember when the air raid siren would go off once a month and we'd all hide under our desks because the Russians, we were ready for the Russians to send the the ICPM and blow us up as if hiding under our desk was going to make any difference. But, you know, you're just, you're attuned to be scared, to be scared, to be scared, and then to go there and have people there be just utterly swooning with affection for me because I played Cruz and not even so much because of how much they loved the relationship between Cruz and Eden but because they perceived Cruz to be an honest cop which in that culture at the time it was just considered so shockingly attractive that here was a cop that you couldn't bribe and that would actually give you a fair shake in a bad situation. It was a miracle to go there and feel that, you know, something I'll, you know, I'll never forget. It, you wow. know, life-changing. You know, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's no secret that Santa Barbara never had it easy for essentially the entirety of its run. I mean, you, know, you, you never had the ideal time slot. You were always working under the threat of, can- of cancellation. Uh, you know, the Dobsons were there, and then they weren't there, and then they were suddenly back, and then they were gone again, and then, you know, Marcy decided to go try her luck in prime time. I've heard you speak in the past about how difficult it was for you constantly battling to maintain the integrity of your character through what seemed to be a constant flow of change and upheaval Mm -hmm. behind the scenes at Santa Barbara. When it was finally time for you to make the choice to bid farewell to Cruz and to Santa Barbara, I mean, you know, it sounds stupid to ask it this way, but, but was it an easy choice, and how much of a part did 
your constant fight to maintain Cruz's integrity and, and, and honesty in the canvas play in your decision to leave the show? Well, it wasn't so much about that. As hard as that was, you know, I didn't really begrudge it after a while from the point of view that you realize that as you're going through these struggles to hold on to the integrity of this guy, that you're getting bigger and stronger emotionally as you go along. I mean, he was responsible for changing my life. I just had a, a conversation online with Patrick Mulcahy, the genius writer. Oh, the, sure, yeah. One of the great writers of the show, you know, just, sure. you know, just, he just reached out to me and I wanted to say to him again how much I learned and how much getting to do his words, to do his scripts, how much it accelerated my development, not only as an actor, but as a human being. So I was aware that through all the struggles, there was tremendous nourishment. I mean, I was being awakened and opened like maybe never would have happened to me without the struggles of holding on to that. But what happened basically was L.A. Law said, you want to come be on L.A. Law. And there is basically, at the end of the day, a sense that your job is, especially once you start having a family, your job is to try to find some stability and continuity in this pursuit, in this career, and those things are always threatened. So the idea that I could actually go from that gig, never knowing how long that gig was going to go on, and actually <laughs> sure. step into a show like L.A. Law was just you know, a miracle. That being said, even though I you know, made my peace with it and I made the decision to leave, when the show was canceled not too long thereafter, I was really having a hard time with having lost the possibility that I could go back at some point in time. And be cruised. Um Even before the show closed, just in walking away from it, even though from a business point of view, from an artistic development point of view, from a career point of view, it was a no-brainer to go to L.A. Law. But as soon as I sure. stopped having access to cruise <laughs> in my daily life, I had to deal with a sense of loss that was fairly profound. I mean, I, people who knew me really well would say, what is wrong with you? You know, you have this great new job. You just, you know, your family, you have this new child has come. You know, the, you built your house, you, all these wonderful things, and you seem like, you, you know, the dog ate your lunch. And the truth is I just missed playing Cruz because he had become this giant presence in my brain. And when he just, like, started to disappear from within me, it was hard. It was really, really hard. And I did not see that coming. I still would have left, but I did not see that coming. You know, it, it's so funny. When Guiding Light was canceled in 2009, I was listening to some of those actors talk about how, you know, a lot of them never thought that the show would actually be canceled because they never thought that whoever was heading CBS at the time would want to be the one to take that show mm. off the air. And I wonder if some of you guys on Santa Barbara thought, well, you know, I mean, you know, even though the ratings are bad and whatever, it's still a very special show and, and held a very special place in a lot of fans' hearts. And, and you know, someone at NBC wouldn't want to be the one responsible for canceling that show. Mm. Did you guys have a sense That's of that, really or, or did you always think the axe could fall at any time here? The thing is that one thing you start to under, notice as you go along is that the people that are in those positions to make those calls, they're really sort of under the same kind of pressure that you are. You know, it's like... Those executive suites, I mean, there's doors going in and out of them, too. And, and it's like the people that, you know what I mean? You, you sort of, you think, well, this is the guy, that our fate is in this guy's hands. And then all of a sudden, 
you open the paper and he's gone, and then there's someone else who's now got your fate in their hands, and they never even met you. And it's like you start to realize, you know, I'm not going to really be able to depend on the loyalty or the goodwill of my benefactor at the top because that person is basically trying to keep their own sure. career going. And, and they don't and really care what people in France think or Italy or what, or yeah. That's right. Had NBC had a piece of the show, NBC did not own the show. New World Television did. So NBC was not getting any of the benefit of the worldwide, because it was a worldwide success. In America, it was really a middling kind of ratings thing. And basically, they were getting no benefit from France and Italy and Germany and Greece and uh, Russia. It was nothing to them. So their idea, which was to replace it with a show that they owned, made perfect economic sense, and when they did indeed do that, they started making a whole lot more money once they put Sunset Beach in there, and like, sure. you know, they didn't have to change the, the, all the all the signs that said SB still worked in the studio. I mean, it was an instant switchover, and they were making a lot more money, you know. I got to that, one of the things that sort of was working against it in America, especially as America started getting more and more mobile and as more women started to go to work and the percentage of women who would spend their days in their homes started to dwindle, you know, you get into the situation where there's not that stability in the viewing audience that there once was. And to sort of keep things kind of in place, the shows that told stories at a glacial pace had a big advantage. You could go on away for some reason, something would take you away for a couple of weeks, and you could come back and turn the show on, and the same thing would be going on as the day you left two weeks ago. So you didn't really have a sense that you missed a beat. But Santa Barbara, at its best, was a train. I mean, it's like, you know, we told you that today, and now tomorrow it's going to be something else, and the next day it'll be something else after that. So if you missed a significant portion of Santa Barbara, you were going to come back and not quite know where you were. And a lot of people... You know, that means doing work that a lot of people weren't necessarily willing to undertake. So sure. I got that the very design of it tended to work against it from the point of view of NBC. You know, what broke a lot of our hearts was it seemed like in the last, say, eight to ten months of the show's run, it seemed like they finally got the ship righted again and, and you know, they got some people in there behind the scenes who knew what they were doing and, and you know, were creating new characters and, and you know, they were really – it seemed like everybody was working so damn hard to try to right the ship, and it seemed like you finally did get the ship righted. And then, uh, you know, when the axe finally fell, it just it broke all of our hearts. No, oh, I know, I know. It's just the worst thing. Like I say, I wasn't even working on it, and it broke my heart. So <laughs> it's just one of those things, man. It, 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 I swear to God, it's like you invest in these things emotionally, and you, you, you just sort of have an overwhelming need to assume that the people that are responsible for keeping them in place will share your sentiment and will act according to preserving it. But it's a completely And that's just not the way it works. That's not the way it works. They, <laughs> they just, they're just trying to keep their own thing going. And I, I really understand it a lot better as I've gotten older. You know, you start to realize, you know, it's the same way in the society, too. So many people that you think are, why would that person say or do that? But if you st- step back, you kind of go, well... I can see that if they actually say or do what I would like them to do, which maybe we could actually boldly describe as something more akin to the truth, they'd be made, they'd be made to suffer, you know? So I get it. I'm not going to rag on them for being a little bit afraid to suffer because no one really likes to suffer that much. You know, one of the great shames about the way Santa Barbara ended was that the Cruz and Eden fans never really got any closure on that love story. It was all just sort of left dangling, sadly. Uh, was it ever floated that you might return for the finale, or you and Marcy? 
I never heard anything about that. They did not contact me at all. I certainly would have shown up in a heartbeat, but I was not asked to. And I can sort of get that it was more appropriate for the people that had actually been there, as you say, working so hard in those last months to write the ship. I think it was appropriate to, you know, leave it to them. You know, my thing always has been the assumption, really, that I would get to work with Marcy again. I mean, it's like, why would we not, right? <laughs> sure. But, you know, it's like she has withdrawn herself from the game. And so it obviously, it, now you start to think you're crazy for thinking it's true. But but I somehow, you know, I banked on that for a long time. And the truth be told, there's a pretty big piece of me that is still banking on that. You know, just that sure. somehow... I'll be able to think of something or someone will come up with something or, <laughs> you know, she'll come across something or we'll just go, you know, wouldn't it be cool if just for the sake of et cetera and, you know, give it another shot. And, uh, you know, that to me would be such a great thing to do. It would mean the world to me um, just to be able to hook up with her again and you know, sure. in a story and kind of do that dance we do. And I'm still, you know, it's probably irrational at this point in time, but I'm still kind of <laughs> Hanging, hanging in there on that, actually, Brandon. But, you know, not just you and Marcy. I mean, you and Nancy Gron were dynamite together. You and Kim Zimmer and you and Cindy Penny created something mm. very special in the short time that you, that you guys worked together. I mean, it's... Mm. Thank you for saying that. I, you know, those are wonderful actors, you know. They're just wonderful actors. One thing I'll say in the years I've been doing it, and it's a long run at this point in time, is that I think the quality <laughs> in general of the actors, you just look around now, when you see wonderful acting. In my estimation, it's really, it's more like the norm now than the exception. And I think, you know, when I was getting started, that wasn't the case, which is maybe why people left me alone as I floundered, because <laughs> you know, I was among a bunch of people that were floundering, perhaps. But but now, I swear to God, you just go see. I mean, I just, it, it's such a treat to me to go to the movies and just watch the incredible degree of professionalism that has grown up in the culture behind the uh, art of acting. It's just sure. It's, it's not just not just movies. I mean, if you look at television, if you look at Homeland, if you look at Mad Men, if you look at The Good Wife, I mean, it's there's great material everywhere you turn these days. I did a scene in Longmire with Robert Taylor, who plays Longmire on that show. And, you know, he's out of Australia. He's been working for 30 years, and he's done a lot of really cool stuff. But until he got Longmire, really, really never got that part, you know, that one part that you need to kind of, like, have it break for you. And I was doing a scene with him where my character is being incredibly rude. I'm in his face, you know, accusing him of being uncaring about young Indian people that are being taken from their homes and stuff. and But, I mean, as rudely and, and unpleasantly as you could imagine, and we're both really angry, and then suddenly his character decides to hear what I'm saying and get it, that he's actually these kids are actually being taken from their parents for someone else's financial profit, which is a real thing in the world, let me say. And I swear, Brandon, within a few seconds, there were tears at the edges of his eyes, and I'm just, okay, he's actually that good. And a couple of minutes before the scene was starting, we were just shooting the shit and just joking around and wow. acted like we weren't emotionally invested in this process <laughs> at all. And then the minute we actually turn on the thing, look at, look at that. So that's just the most recent example in my mind of just like me staying across from someone with a camera rolling and being blown away with the depth sure. of their commitment. You know, you know I, I don't know if you... Uh... I don't know if you want to say anything about the One Life to Live experience or even if there is anything to say about it, but, you know, it, it was a, 
it was a weird time in the run of that show, and you know they were just coming off that latest writer's strike, and and I suspect you know Frank and Ron were battling the network over a great many things with regard to the creative direction of the show, and and it just it, yeah. it felt like they didn't really know what the hell to even do with you and your character. Well, you know, I I really I loved it. I loved the experience. I felt really sad that it ended. Actually, you know, it was talk about again a company of wonderful actors. I mean, you know, you go and it's like. You know, everybody in that cast has got legitimate chops, you know, and sure. it's like, holy shit, it, it, it was a great experience. And I'll tell you also, I made a conscious choice. I mean, you know, this they write this guy, he was not a pleasant guy. I mean, he was a dark, tight, closed, violent, really a nasty guy. And I basically was very aware going in that I could choose to find ways to bring more light to him in a way that would perhaps, you know, make him have a better kind of chance for surviving longer. But, you know, I thought, I know how to do that, and there's times to do that, and there's times not to do that, and this just felt like a time not to do it. And I really liked the fact that I stayed true to the intention of what he was like, and, of course, it was great to get to work with Robin. She's a phenomenal actor, and the process of actually putting the work together with her on a day-to-day basis. You know, we both had a litany of questions. Says, well, why wouldn't they do this with us or do that with us or give us a shot to do this and that, right? But the truth is that what they did give us to do, I loved to get to do. So I don't have any regrets about it. And I think, uh, you know, Frank is not only a brilliant producer, but a, just a prince of a guy. So No question. You know, talking about Robin and your long line of brilliant and strong leading ladies, this must have been a great deal of fun, I can imagine, you know, matching wits with someone of her caliber and her talent. Yeah, she's so, you know, I mean, we, we you know, the, the, with the process of putting those performances together was so wonderful. And, of course, by the time I did One Life to Live, the process of doing a daytime show had shifted from the kind of rehearsal <laughs> intensive uh, thing that we, we enjoyed at the beginning of Santa Barbara to this yeah. new paradigm, which is just show up, get in the makeup, and go out and stand in front of the camera, right? So, you know, to actually to find, okay, what are we going to try to play under this? I mean, what's going to be happening under these words? That's sort of left up to you to some degree. And, of course, when you're with someone like her that's done so much in these realms, you have keys to a giant vault of inspiration. And it's like it was just a blast to sit there and figure it out. You know, and she would have so many acutely useful suggestions and observations to go along during the rehearsal process. So it was really nourishing, and, you know, I love her. It was just great. You know, daytime is such a crapshoot anyway, as as you and I both know. I mean, it's nearly impossible to tell beforehand what's going to take off story-wise and what's not. Uh, You know, my sense just from reading between the lines is that you weren't that crazy about being in New York full-time anyway, but does it break your heart when, as an actor, when things just don't pan out the way they do sometimes well you know the economy went crazy the banks took their big bite and you know i remember the day that the import of that actually was visited upon frank i saw him walking down the hallway and he looked like uh, all the blood had been drained from his body he was white as a ghost and he looked like he'd seen some image that he wished he'd never laid eyes on he just looked haunted and i was just blown away and i i said what's up and he goes can't talk and that's what basically he'd been told was all previous contracts were null and void. Everything was now 
shifted because of what would basically be perceived as an act of God if you wanted to chase it to the lawyer's extreme. And, you know, basically said to a whole bunch of people, I mean, this was like throughout the industry from people in his position on down, this is the new economic reality and you will either conform to it now or we'll be saying goodbye. And, of course, you know, that's not supposed to happen, right? A contract in the old-fashioned sense is supposed to be a contract. So there was a shakedown that happened that was beyond anybody's control. And my, I earlier had had a chance to go live in New York and work on daytime when my kids were younger, and it really didn't make sense. But when I actually was there for guiding uh, for uh, um, One Life to Live, my daughter, Devin, was in her second year at Yale. So my nine-month run on that show corresponded to her second year of school. So I basically got to actually have dinner with her every two weeks, either in New Haven or in New York. So it was it, I loved it. I loved it. And I was, if for no other reason, just regretful for that aspect of it going away. But I don't look back on it regretfully. So let's at least find people who are listening to this what you're up to now. I mean, I understand you're working on a project that is – a bit of a family affair and something that's very near and dear to your heart. Tell me about Before Your Eyes. Oh, thank you, man. Yeah, Before Your Eyes is a short film that I wrote and I'm directing, and we have completed half of it. We launched a Kickstarter program to finance the completion of the film, and it's going really well. And I, it basically it tells the story of a family that's in crisis. There are 25 characters in it. I wrote the script to specifically target various actors that I have worked with or watched over the years, some of whom are contemporaries of my kids who I started watching when they were, you know, 11 and 12 years old on stage trying to pretend to be grown-ups. And, you know, they're people that I, I've just come to respect and admire, and I, have, I thought I had a pretty good sense of what their voice would be in a story about the large extended family that's decided to form a band, their musicians. And when I actually got them on the stage and got them to be able to work together and to hear them say the words that I had imagined that they would say gracefully, it was thrilling because they were, by and large, just better than I'd even imagined. It's been you know, I was, I was thrilled to see the name Lee McCluskey in the in the uh, cast yeah. list on your Kickstarter page. That was that was a great name from the past. He's such an astounding artist, Brandon. I mean, he is truly... We worked together a lot on Santa Barbara. And, you know, sure, we he was such a nasty character well. on Santa Barbara. He was so awful. He was so terrible. And uh, <laughs> I, I, remember, I remember him. He felt pretty bad about how bad he was, but he was bad. But, I mean, he's Juilliard trained. He's one of the most brilliant fine artists I've ever been around. When I was in desperate straits in 2006, I was just such a wreck. I'd been writing about some really difficult stuff, political stuff, and I was not sleeping well or eating well, and I was really feeling terrible. I was just raw. And uh, I got an invitation to come into his library that he keeps in his home, which is a place that he has painted. He started painting on the floor, and he basically started painting up the walls and on the spines of the books, and it's like walking into wow. a wonderland. And I'm basically, he invited me, and when I went upstairs, he saw the look on my face, and he turned around and walked downstairs and left me alone up there for 20 or 25 minutes so I can regain my composure. Wow. He's become like a brother. He's a treasure in my life and his family. So and, you know, get you, to write, you, were talking, you were talking earlier about guys who, ha, you know, haven't really found that role yet, and you could argue that he's a guy who who never really found the role that made him the superstar that he should have been. 
Yes, and I also think, because I noticed that lately, as I've gotten older, that you know, I went through a period of time where it was kind of thin out there for me, but as I've gotten older, there started to be more opportunities again. And I was just having this thought, it's so funny you should mention that, because I was just thinking about this the last couple of days, is I'm looking at Lee now, and he's getting craggy to go with that handsome. You know, he's he's so beautiful. I mean, the dude was arguably one of the most beautiful young men I've ever. You know, you look at him and go, "Holy cow!" You know, sure. It's like, what modeling agency did you walk out of? But the truth was, he was basically walking out of Juilliard. You know, he was, you know, he was doing the work and just happened to look that beautiful. But now his work and his mind and his thinking and his ability to articulate and just synthesize useful ideas out of the most amazing pieces is just unprecedented in my life. And to see how that kind of beauty is now weathering and getting kind of like edgy and craggy, it's like to me, my thought was he just needs to get a shot and, you know, he could come out of left field at something could sure. at Sundance, and the next thing you know, he's, like, suddenly getting looked at again. And so that's my dream. And among the things that I hope will happen with this movie I'm making is that it will lead to more. And I think it just demonstrates a lot of actors, some of them like Lee, that have been around a while, like uh, Laurie O'Brien, Carl Weintraub, the brilliant David Hayward, who was, used to work with Robert Altman back in the day. Just great, great talents. I just have a sense that this is a shot to kind of see these people in a new light and especially to see the younger people in the film that are just getting started to kind of look at them in beautiful light with a good story to tell and a lot of soulful emotional power behind it and basically kind of imagine, you know, what they might do further on. So that's my dream, and so far so good. So can you give me a sense of the story? I mean, don't give away the story or anything, but, you know, just a sense of the story being told in the film. It's the story of a family that has fallen on really difficult times where the kids are dreamers, they're musicians, and they have a sense that their music will be a tonic in the world if they can get it out there. They're really dreamers in that regard. Their father is old school and has lost his job. It takes place in 2008, around the time when the economy was starting to founder, and mirrors kind of what I went through where, you know, where the economy blows up and suddenly I don't have a job. You know, and it's like, it's me and how many millions of other people, of course, you know, my career. I'm used to not having a job, so it's like, uh, it's sort of normal. But if you're somebody who's been working at a certain place your whole life and now that's pulled out from under you because of the greed of somebody you'll never meet, that's a hard thing to swallow. So the dad basically loses his job. He's not in good health. And he wants his kids to abandon this what he perceives to be this silly pursuit of their music and get down to like finding a way to like, you know, save the house from foreclosure. And his son in particular, who's played by my son Dakota, his son in particular thinks that to abandon his dreams for the sake of this particular crisis of the moment would be a big mistake. And so he refuses. And when the father and son face off like this, the other people in the family side with the son and the father leaves. And on the night we meet them in the movie, the father is coming back home because wow. Lee's character discovered him at a mall and decided that he had to come home. And he basically captured him and brought him home. So we're, re- we're having father come back after two months of being away and the band in the midst of recording a video of a new song that they hope will be the centerpiece of their album, which is just about finished. And on the night when they're going to record the song, 
father comes home and it's just awful to have him come home because he's so much closer to being at the end of his rope on all levels. And so it becomes very, very difficult to deal with to have dad come home. And I play dad and, you know, I've gotten really good at being the bad guy. (laughs) I I, I recommend it highly. Years of practice. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it it seems fair to say, just peeking at some of the clips and some of the things you've posted on Facebook and on on Kickstarter, that that, uh, your talent uh, has certainly passed down to your succeeding generations. Uh, Has working with your children and your family long been a dream of yours in this way? Yeah, it's long been a, you know, it's the funniest thing, and man, it's like you remember, but you, you have these stories when you're growing up about how the cobbler taught his son to, you know, hit the nails <laughs> in the bottom of the shoe, you know, and you just think, well, okay, well, what can I do, you know, and occasionally you see yeah. it working, right, you watch the Bridges Boys, I mean, you watch uh, Ron Howard's family, when his little brother Clint was on the Cowboys, I met his family, and they said, oh, we, we need you to look out for Clint, you know, and remember David Carradine, he couldn't be Bobby's guardian on the Cowboys because Bobby Carradine was only 17. So, so, A, will you take care of Bobby? Well, you know, because I, I, I can't be out here for 16 weeks. Wow. So I said, sure. You, you've seen, like, these families kind of pass this down. Sure. And it's like I watched my kids when they were younger. They'd go on stage, and you'd look at them, and you'd go, wow, they're not nervous. They don't. They actually seem like to feel that they belong there. When I was a kid and went on stage, in fact, all my life when I've gone on stage, I'm always a little bit unsure of whether I really belong. And yet, somehow, generationally, the passing of the DNA, they totally buy into it. And I mean, they are so much better at what they do than I was at their ages that, you know, it just seems like, okay, this is the correct way the world is supposed to work. You pass on the things you know and then your children take them up and make them better. And so to be able to work with them, and you know, especially when it's about music where we're singing together and you're actually getting to hear you know, that kind of passion that comes with throwing off your intellect and just going into the song, it's so thrilling. So to say that I'm about getting to work with them, <laughs> and the fact, you know, it's, I'm beyond stoked. And, you know, the fact that they want to work with me, too, you know, that we're in really close communication. There's a lot of back and forth going on between me and the kids all the time, and it feels so incredibly nourishing. I'm so grateful for it. You know, with all the the technology and the social media and all the advances, one might think that it's easier than ever to get – uh, you know, to bring a project like this to fruition. But, you know, if you look around at some of the things that are being made, I, I think in some ways it might be harder than ever to get something like this off the ground. Is that is that fair to say or no? Well, I think that, you know, I, I've um, I basically been hoping to become a director as time goes on, and I, I was late to finally making that commitment, you know, and I have been writing for pretty much all my life, and I really do have a voice as a writer. And my manager says, you know, it's really wonderful. I sign off on your work and stuff, but you have a unique sensibility and you're not young. And it's like, when you, if you want to go to one of these big studios and say, I need this number of dollars to make this movie, you know, chances are their answer is going to be, well, why? You know, why should we give you that? You know, you haven't proven that you can do that. And there's this guy over here who's got a much bigger upside since he's probably got 40 years in front of him. And you probably don't have 40 years in front of you, so why should we give you the money? And, you know, basically he said, I think what you need to do is start fairly small. I mean, this movie, Before Your Eyes, is, you know, coming in at between 30 and 35 minutes long. 
just do something. Write something that doesn't require zooming around the whole world and show that you can actually do it. Show that you actually can tell a story with a camera. So and I figure, well, that's impeccably good advice. And so I decided, well, if I really am worthy to like want to be a director, I surely should be able to like write something that would prove it. <laughs> so that's basically what I decided to do. And these themes are in play in our family and in storytelling among us. This is a central theme, so it was already there for me to know what I wanted to talk about. So I just did it. And hopefully it'll prove worthwhile. I have tremendous amount of faith right now that it's really going to prove to have been a wise decision to pursue it. You know, I can imagine that if you're not surprised by the response to the Kickstarter campaign, you're at least emboldened by the by the amazing uh, response so far, too. I'm so thrilled, man. I tell you, I... You know, I know that a lot of the people have decided to pitch in on behalf of this undertaking. You know, it's not like they're rolling in dough. and <laughs> You know what I mean? And it's so cool that they would step up and go, you know what, I'll give them a shot here, you know. And just in general, Kickstarter is the coolest thing. I mean, I'm sure I've supported four other things myself, and I know how much it means to the people who actually decide to risk it and then to back them and have it come off this really wonderful artist, Hannah Mulholland, who's a contemporary, again, of my kids, you know, just sings like an angel and writes really brave. And, I, you know, it's just so great to be a part of helping someone like that get off the ground. It just feels great. So, so do you dream of, of extending this to a feature-length project someday if this works out okay? Or, or do you want to just keep this at a, at a short well, half-hour? Among the movies that I have, you know, that I have in the drawer, because I have some now, there's a movie that uses these characters in a bigger setting. And it's uh, it would allow me to actually have more people in the cast and stretch it out even bigger. You know, and there, some of the people are very similar. I think that if I had my druthers, that would be the next thing I do. There's also, you know, there's so many stories in the world to tell. But of course. This story, I think, is really, really critical. I love the idea of reinforcing the power of faith, of not settling, of actually assuming the best and being willing to make it come true, as opposed to like operating out of fear or a sense of frustration or a sense of hopelessness. You know, the fact that if you look at each other and decide to pull in the same direction, you know, miracles can be achieved. I've seen that in my life over and over and over again. I really believe in it, and I think it's important to keep those stories at the center of our consciousness to the best degree that we can. So I probably will chase this idea um, as far as it'll keep bearing fruit. And I think there's a lot of fruit yet to bear. <laughs> and so if, if people listening to this would like to contribute to the Kickstarter, and I'm going to insist that everybody does, uh, is there an easy way for them to be able to find the Kickstarter page and find the campaign and what have you? I was going to sort of like write down and like iterate all the slashes, you know, the numbers on it and the way the <laughs> URL is. But I think the easiest thing to do, I just tried this out this morning, is just go to kickstarter.com and the page comes up and there's a little search box in the center at the top and just type in before your eyes and you'll instantly be at our movie. Then you can look at the video. It's so fun. Even if you decide not to contribute, just looking at the video is really fun. Sure, I gotta, sure. I gotta, if I do say so myself, it's a good cool <laughs> video. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, just for the sake of argument, and I, you know, I am not trying to make any news here, and I'm not trying to make any trouble, but just for giggles, let's just suppose here. Mm. Young and the Restless just recently brought on a Latino police detective character, and you know, he could always use a father or an uncle or you know, some sort of blood relation. So let's just suppose that... <laughs> Miss Jill Phelps, who you mentioned earlier, 
or to ring you up and make you an offer and ask you to come play for a while. Would you ever have any interest in wading back into the shark-infested waters of daytime again, or have you bid farewell to that part of your life forever? No, no, no. In a heartbeat, I'd be there. In a heartbeat. (laughs) I love it. It's a lot harder than it used to be to do it well, but that doesn't mean you can't. You know, it's like... I used to look at One Life to Live under the conditions, and you think, how can this, how can this we make this work? They, we can't, you know, it's like we have like three minutes to get ready. But, you know, you had... Uh, and no rehearsal. Uh, this, and no rehearsal. But, you know, but I mean, you can find a way to sneak off to the corner and like figure stuff out, you know. And it's like, I just was amazed with how good that show was. At its best, it was just fabulously good. So, yeah, I'm, and you know, I'm down. I love being part of telling stories and... I think Jill is a genius, not to mention one of the, I mean, I there, I can't begin to describe how many wonderful things have happened in my life because of things that she has taught me or shared with me. You know, things that, having nothing to do with her job as a producer or my job sure. as an actor, just as a friend of mine. You know, she she has been as good a friend as a person could ever want to have in the world. I mean, a, truly a friend with, you know, has your back when the sky is dark. So if she says this would be something that you should do, I would know immediately that it would indeed be something I, wish I would do. So if, if it happens, I'm down, yeah. You know, it's so funny. The great Linda Dano has been a great pal of this program over the years. And, and mm. you know, whenever she's here, I always find a way to, uh, you know, bring the conversation around to soaps because I love talking about it, as you can tell. And, you yeah, know, yeah. She, she always swears up and down that she's done with that part of her career whenever I ask her about it. But, you know, I'm convinced and remain so that she would say yes to the right offer. Not that I know what, that, mm-hmm. what the right offer would be, but, you know, there are some offers that are just too good to pass up, as you and I both know. <laughs> she is an example of, you know, it's like you look at Linda over the years and the thing, okay, what is it about this? And the, you kind of go, well, at the end of the day, what it is most about to me beyond how lovely she looks and how interesting they write her and stuff, is that as an actor, she's just flat fearless. She'll do anything. She'll try things you think, well, how, how, what, how would she think to do that, right? She's just <laughs> willing to just be big and be the most important thing that's ever happened, and the, you know, the, you're so lucky to be even watching me take, draw a breath, you know. Just this profound level of fearlessness. That you know is like a lesson to everybody who's ever decided to try to be an actor. That's like, and you know, very much like you, I think she has an immense likability. I mean, you see her on screen, and you immediately think, "I like her. I like him." Mm. Mm. I think people respond to courage, and I just, when I'm a father going to like watch my kids in the school play, and I see some of their (laughs) classmates just decide to like do things that they have no business trying to do at their age. Just go for it. Yeah. Just going for it. It's like you can just see them imagining this thing <laughs> hovering in the air above them, and they just reach to inhabit it. And it's like you go, holy cow. I mean, that to me, I'm like getting all goosebumps, and I'm getting all inspired, and my eyes are getting – that's what you want to see. You know, That to me is like what makes the species continue to move forward in consciousness and stuff. And I just uh, – you know, I feel – thrilled whenever I'm around that and to get to be a part of trying to advance it or promote it or showcase it is just a stone gas, I've got to tell you. Sure. So what's on the horizon for A. Martinez beyond Before Your Eyes? What's what's coming down the pike for you? Well, I think Longmire's going up for the third season, probably start in April, and I just booked a gig on this NBC show, The Night Shift. Oh, great, okay. The uh, mid-season replacement, playing a really, really difficult man. That show, I think, is... You know, I think they've probably ordered 10 of them so far. So if that goes, 
I'm hopeful that I'll be recurring on that show as well. Great. But mainly, Before Your Eyes is the kind of center of not only my heart right now, but the heart of everybody in my family. <laughs> and I know you've got a role in the new Chucky film, and, and it's funny because, you know, we think soaps have these fervent fan bases, but this must be endearing you to a whole new audience of fans. Oh, yeah, it's amazing how many people have decided that I'm okay now that I did the Chucky movie. And i and I got to tell you, man, it was so fun to do. My manager said, Chucky? And I went, well, I don't know, it's Chucky. <laughs> Let me read it. So I read it, and I'm going, well, this is a great script. Plus, yeah. the part that the part that they offered me has a scene in it. The minute you lay eyes on the scene, you go, well, you know, if I do this, no one will ever forget it. <laughs> so, you know, and I mean, as an actor, that has a tremendous appeal, the idea to sure. be in a scene that people, for whatever reason, <laughs> even if they want to forget it, they will never forget it. So, yeah, it was such a gas. And uh, Don Mancini, who's the guy who wrote and created the franchise and directed this film, is a great, great guy. So it was a blast, i got to say. Plus, I got to meet Brad Dourif. You know, the great Brad Dourif. I mean, Lane Davies, back on during Santa Barbara, left one time to go and work with Brad Dourif and came back crowing about the fact that he got to work with Brad Dourif while we were all laboring in NBC Burbank's all night. So Very I was thinking, cool. well, okay, all these years down the road, baby, I got to work with Brad Dourif, too. And, and I had a great time with him. So. Yeah, it was pretty great, Brandon. And if people would like to connect with you and just say, hey, are you doing the social media thing, Facebook, Twitter? Yeah, I'm A-Bone Martinez. Uh, that was my daddy's nickname for me was A-Bone. So I'm A-Bone Martinez on Facebook and Twitter. And you heard the man, but I certainly have no qualms about reminding you. Kickstarter.com, search for Before Your Eyes and follow the very easy instructions if you would like to chip in on helping this man fulfill his dream. You know, we recorded this a couple of weeks ago, and since that time, I'm thrilled to announce to you that A has indeed reached his ultimate financial goal, but there are always unexpected expenses that pop up here and there, so if you'd still like to contribute to the project in any denomination uh, that you can swing, I assure you that any and all donations will be accepted with great gratitude. Over 30,000 of you guys listened to my most recent episode with the great Alicia Coppola, and if every one of you were to donate a dollar to this project, that would be quite a coup for a brilliant and beautiful piece of work that is flying far under the radar right now. Quickly, I'd like to throw a shout-out to a marvelous young lady by the name of Monica Cottrell, who reached out to me a few weeks ago and told me she thought A would make a great guest here on The Buzz, and she worked some serene, stunning magic behind the scenes and very much helped to make it happen. Monica, you were right, my dear. A was a fabulous guest, and I couldn't have done it without you. A million thanks. And a billion thanks to the peerless Mr. A. Martinez for allowing himself to be pelted with my questions about a chapter in his life that has long since ended. You know, I've already extracted a promise that once the film Before Your Eyes is completed, that A will come back here to tell us a lot more about it. I'm holding you to that, sir, and I wish you the very best of luck with this project. You know, Brandon's buzz is a labor of love for me, so I absolutely know the feeling of pouring your heart into something and hoping it takes flight. And I can't wait to see your film reach cruising altitude and soar above the clouds, Mr. A. Martinez. And speaking of, why don't we bring this up again for a landing, huh? Brandon's buzz in the can, yet another episode on the pile. If you are listening to the show already, then you clearly know how to find it, but in case you don't, three places online. BlogTalkRadio.com slash Brandon's Buzz is home base for this show. Uh, from there, you can see what's on the show, what's been on the show, what's coming on the show. You can uh, leave comments. You can send emails to me. It really is mission control for Brandon's Buzz. Again, it's blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. You can also find me at my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. 
there at the top of any page is a blue button marked radio. Click that button. That takes you to a full listing, a full radio archive, every episode of Brandon's Buzz uh, in the radio archive of Brandon's Buzz. This, I believe, is episode number 94. This and all previous 93, all available in the radio archive at Brandon's Buzz. Check them all out. Uh, you, you can also find me at iTunes, guys. I'm on iTunes. Just type Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box. Scroll down to the Puzzle Piece logo in the podcast section. Click on that. That takes you to a full listing, as I just said, of all episodes, which you can download as individual podcasts for playback on the device of your choosing, or you can subscribe to the show and have new episodes automatically download to your library the minute they're uploaded to the store. So, listen, I'm on iTunes, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, I'm all over. Google the words Brandon's Buzz, and I assure you, or Bing the words Brandon's Buzz, and I assure you, something will pop up that points you in my direction. And as ever, I appreciate you guys coming in my direction. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you guys finding me and listening to me, and I hope you continue finding and listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, everybody out there. This is Eileen Kristen, and I have just been on Brandon's Buzz. This is a great show and a very sophisticated mind. So spread the word, Brandon's Buzz. This is Claire Massey from Tammy Show, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Great guy, great show. Check it hey out. Hey guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. So if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it. Baby, when you live on a street of dreams. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon Buzz, the place to be. Hi, everybody. This is Nicholas Walker. Merci à vous tous. Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir et à très bientôt. <laughs> 